Your sensors are correct. Do not adjust your heading. Your heading. You've discovered the Omega Particle. Streaming to the Alpha Quadrant and beyond. 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 Here's your host. The anchorman of the Federation. The doctor of Dilithium. This is Jonathan Wiegand. Welcome to the Omega Particle Podcast. I'm your gracious host, Jonathan Wiegand. And welcome to our conclusion of our 24th century chaos behind the scenes of the next generation production and and crew. Boy, this is going to be an exciting episode. It's a barn burner. Um, I learned so much when researching this whole entire endeavor. Super surprised by some things and how catty Hollywood is. That's, That's another thing. And anyway... It is a crazy episode, a lot of great stories and Easter eggs about the show. The point of reference for this whole entire series has been a documentary that William Shatner made, and it's called Chaos on the Bridge, and it's about this whole subject. (laughs) So all of these interviews, all of the um, quotes and things like that come from this documentary. So definitely check it out. I I had to actually go on iTunes um, store and like rent it for 24 hours and watch it. I think at one point it was on Netflix, but it's not anymore. So um, if you want to check it out, you can. But again, if you listen to this previous episode and this episode, you got the whole gist of it. But um, yeah, it's crazy. I'm just going to go right into it. Um, Not a lot of fluff in the opening segment today. And just boom, let's get started with Behind the Scenes of TNG Part 2. So to recap where we left off is Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, has this personal ideology, personal kind of vision of the future. And he wants to use Star Trek to display that. And he uses Star Trek to kind of get that message across. And some points are humanistic and some points are more of anti-capitalistic points. However, we're not going to go into that, but this is how Gene views humanity in the 24th century because right now in the 21st century, humanity is its infant stage, Gene would say. It's, we just gather wealth, step on one another, nothing else matters, and kind of goes against his whole personal thesis about the future. So again, this is just a recap from episode one, is that when you have that kind of future, there's really no drama. There's no conflict that there's no jealousy. There's no, there's no crazy ambition that people are punishing and tripping over one another to get ahead because everybody's equal. Everybody's happy. And there's no conflict between characters. And that creates a huge issue for the writers and understandably. So how can you create drama and that's an essence of all tv shows when you don't have any in between characters you have no conflict between the characters so this is kind of where we left off the reiners being pissed about that and some of them were happy like i I mentioned braga who turned out to be one of the best um, executive producers of star trek of the golden age of star trek in the 90s he said it was a great constraint that it used to grow but 
in my personal opinion, no conflict, no story. They actually interviewed a ton of writers for this documentary. And one of the writers said that they would actually walk around to one another's office and be like, I, I don't know how to write perfect people. How do I, I, this doesn't make any sense. How do you deal with this? Like it's all negotiation. There's no fighting. There's no grappling. There's, there's just nothing. It's just, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. And it's just perfect people. And they, and they hated that. And the thing that caused a lot of the drama with the writers, and I would be absolutely livid if I was a writer and this happened is that they would, the, and this is primarily again, recap season one, season two of TNG. And the writers would, would create these scripts and they would give it to Gene and, and Gene would simply just rewrite the script. He didn't like what they did. He didn't like what the, the plot was and he would simply just change it and not tell anybody. And that has, I mean, that would be frustrating. I mean, I'm sure you're sitting there wherever you are listening be like, yeah, that'd be frustrating to me. And it was so frustrating. They had such a high turnover in the first season. And when I say this number, this is not an exaggeration. This is an exact number. 30 writers and staff members left TNG between season one and season two. It, it was almost so comical. One of the head writers had in his bathroom, and he stayed on for all seven seasons of TNG, he had in his bathroom a kind of bulletin board, whiteboard of all of the writers that worked on the show and he crossed off the ones that left or got fired. And it was just this, talk about toxic environment and political environment. You're, you're frustrating your staff, you're undermining them, and then they're quitting or you're firing them because you don't like what they're giving. Because again, Gene wanted people to write Star Trek to him. He wanted people to write Star Trek to the older, more mature, higher in the clouds observation kind of Star Trek a.k.a. Picard, as opposed to cowboy diplomacy, Kirk punching and making out with aliens and as Gene was in the 1960s. So the writers had to write to him. There's a lot of hoops that these poor guys had to go through. And the sad thing is a lot of them loved Star Trek. They adored Star Trek. It was a dream for them to come on this, on the show. And then it just, sadly, a dream turned into a nightmare. <laughs> and speaking of the writing is that the funny thing is, so you, you have all these scripts, right? And you have Gene undermining the, the writing content. But there's also a funny factoid is that Gene has been on record saying multiple times that TV is a sausage factory. Now, not that sausage factory. Calm down, everybody. <laughs> there's diversity, hopefully, in the cast of the writers, the writer's room. He meant that you have to just churn out the content. Don't matter if it's good just churn it out. Boom, boom, boom. Every week, got to be something, got to be something. And the funny thing is, is that for somebody to have this mindset of, hey man, we got to get this content out. got to get it rolling, rain or shine, late nights, no matter what. And then on the other hand, he's like kind of undermining the whole staff and that he was never satisfied with the writers. I mean, there's even some of the writers going to detail that Gene would literally rewrite the scene three days before shooting. So the actors had to go in and be like, they're learning their lines and Gene would be like, we have a new script and blah, blah, blah. This is it now. So you have to learn all of this new stuff again. 
And that's frustrating for the actors. <laughs> and it's, it kind of throws the whole thing in a turmoil. And if I was working on that, on that cast and that crew, I would think nobody knows what the heck they're doing. Nobody knows what we're doing. There's no direction. And ultimately it's going to fail if you keep doing this because there's no clear teamwork and no clear point of direction. And without vision, the old saying goes without vision, the people die. And that's exactly where Star Trek was headed, unfortunately. The funny thing is this machine, the sausage factory, has broken down, essentially. We're going to be jumping back and forth through seasons one through three, certain content. I'm kind of dealing with all the writer's content right now. And then we're going to be jumping subjects. So just overall, this is the first two, three seasons of the TNG production. But right now we're just dealing with the writers. So just to kind of give a heads up, kind of a structure for the show so you're not confused. It's not a linear model. It's more of a subject model. So at the height of all of this, Gene's an alcoholic. He had this kind of go to rehab before TNG started. It's this kind of deteriorating health. And so he decides throughout the height of, of all this writer drama, season one, season two, he goes to Tahiti with his wife. <laughs> and people are saying on interviews, it was the absolute worst time, worst thing he could have done. It was because he was so in charge. He was so influential, such had his hands in the dirt making these scripts, making this series, and then all of a sudden the leave leaves a massive power vacuum. I mean, and we're talking like World War One power vacuum. I mean, it's just people don't know what to do. They don't know who to report to pretty much. And this is what brings in the other aspect of the writer's drama. And if you remember, that guy at the end of the episode one that we talked about, Hurley, he wrote for Miami Vice and these cop shows he kind of took the mantle as kind of the head writer. And so did Berman, which Berman, again, like Braga, turned out to be one of the great executive producers of the Golden Age of Star Trek. So Hurley was elevated to the showrunner position and kind of that head title, which really shocked everybody because he is not a sci-fi writer. He, he does these buddy cops. And so again, it's uh, another political thing. So on top of all the frustration with Gene, now you have somebody in charge who's never really done this before. And granted, there are people on the writing staff that worked on the original series. So people that know Star Trek better than anyone just got usurped by a guy that wrote Miami Vice. So I would be livid about that. <laughs> Again, they don't really go into why they chose him. Um, they're just like, we just picked him. So maybe that's like the Paramount going the direction of the show or and everything I found online couldn't, figure out why he was Hurley was chosen, but he just was. And yeah, it just led to a lot of backstabbing and, and just a lot of ruffled feathers and rightfully so in that writer's room. So the funny thing is, is that Hurley, even though he was a buddy cop background, he wanted to stick to Gene's ideological thesis and that we'll just call it an ideological box that he wanted to put the show in when Gene was away. He wanted to stick to that, stay true to that. And a lot of the writers were like pissed about it. They're like, look, we don't have to do Star Trek this way anymore. And it was pretty much a showdown between some of the writers, like a group of writers and Hurley about where Star Trek was going, because 
eventually they kept, if you watch season one and season two, it's just, it's not good. (laughs) It's very plot driven, no character development, no real kind of exegist of background. It's just plot, 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 plot. And that gets super old. So there is a great, there is a great example of the writers going back and forth in season one. And that is season one, episode 25. One of the greatest Star Trek episodes, in my opinion, is called the conspiracy episode. Now, you probably be like, oh, conspiracy, that sounds familiar. That's the episode with the earwig aliens. They take over and they're trying to, and eventually trying to take over Starfleet and take over the human race. And it's mainly memorable for that. Indiana Jones, the most graphic head chest cavity explosion special effects on Star Trek. Nothing really matches it ever. So I think it's kind of funny that season one, we set this bar. But that conspiracy episode, Hurley never wanted it. He was vehemently against it. He rejected it, threw it in the trash, and we're not doing that. That's not who we are. It's too dark. That's quote unquote, not Star Trek. <clears throat> Sounds familiar, right? And we're not doing that type of show. However, some way, again, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of politics going to hand, some way that script got to Paramount Upper Management. Paramount Upper Management loved it. They were like, this is perfect. It's exactly what we need. And we need this kind of refresher conflict, this, these new storylines that we've never had before in Trek. And Hurley hated it, but it got made and it's what it is now. One of the most interesting Trek episodes of all time. However, this didn't stop the conflict between the writers. I mean, I don't, I don't blame them because if they kept up with season one, the writing season one, and then eventually the writing season two, it would have just, the show would have withered and died. You have to have good conflict. You have to have good character development. It can't be a hundred percent plot the whole time. That's just that's not good TV. And so what Hurley did to kind of get around the character conflict was to bring in this villain, to have this villain be the epitome of conflict, to bring conflict into the show that's not between the characters. And that's smart. You still want to stick in Gene's box, ideological box. This goes great into what we were talking about before with our Borg series is that originally, if you guys listen to this, you know that the producers chose the Ferengi as the main villain and that people kind of laughed at him. They were kind of comedic more than like intimidating. So they nixed them and they were chose this villain called the Borg as the going to be the big villain in TNG. They wanted to do that with the second season, like the arch has, again, if this is a recap for the Borg series, is that they were going to have the episode called Neutral Zone, where planets and territories on the Neutral Zone with the Romulans were starting to disappear on both sides. And the Romulans and Federation both thought it was the other one doing it. But it turns out, no, it was the Borg. So eventually they were going to do this great maniacal arc, apparently, for season two and then bam what happens right or strike bingo bongo now nobody can talk to anybody so they're in the middle of trying to get ready for season two that means that 
upper management can't talk to the writers, writers can't talk to management. And so no one can talk to Roddenberry. So everyone's kind of just on hiatus. And that lasted five long months. And it was so bad, this strike. And well, we're, we're going to play a clip, but it is incredibly bad and almost got Star Trek canceled. So listen to Patrick Stewart here describe what he heard at lunch that was going through the grapevine at Paramount Studios. I remember having lunch with a couple of executives from Paramount and they were saying, it's really bad. And I think your show will be one of the first to be canceled. It's looking so bad. And I I already adjusted the idea that maybe we'll get two or three years out of this show. Wow. So we were that close to potentially having no Star Trek The Next Generation. And I personally believe if there was just that season one, it would have never been picked up again. It would have just been this random quasi show that came out that was labeled Star Trek, but not really Star Trek. And fans would have never accepted it. Because again, you have to know, remember the fans, like this isn't real Trek. This isn't Kirk. This isn't a Spock. I don't want to be a part of this. This is just not what we want. This is not Trek. I don't like this. Again, sounds familiar. We're going a big cyclical thing again with now with discovering Picard. People are like, this isn't Trek. It's not Picard. And I think um, I always joke about this that in like 20 years, people are going to be saying, well, this isn't Discovery and this isn't Picard. It's, this, is, this isn't real Trek. And I love that that's the standard in our fandom that this isn't real Trek. Like we have the ultimate deciding ability of what is in Star Trek and what's not in Star Trek. Now I agree if it goes really off the wall in the future. Yeah. I'd be like, mm, that's not like if they get into like law and order, Star Trek kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I would agree on that, but I mean, overall it is still in the same vein and I still love and support the new shows. So I think you should too, because the more shows we watch and support the more content and more great content we get. That's my little soapbox. The writer strike ends and they had to delay season two a little bit. And this is where it gets really funny, is that you remember that ideological box that Hurley set the writers in to kind of back Gene up to defend Gene's thesis? Well, again, Gene is being hypocr- hypocritical. Gene is starting to buck against his own ideology. And this drove Hurley and the other writers crazy to be like, hey, this whole first season, you're doing nothing but preaching this ideology. Now you want to do things that are completely against it. Like, what is going on? <laughs> so I would totally get being upset because if you if you want a theme and you want a, kind of that same consistency, you don't want to just be changing it randomly all the time, especially when a show so new and it's laying that foundation for the series. Ultimately frustrating people. I mean, Roddenberry and Hurley would fight. They would scream at each other and throw things and it would just be apparently they were legendary um throwdowns between Roddenberry and Hurley over season two episodes and season two scripts because I mean it's all about ego and it's all about kind of pride and being like well we're gonna have the Star Trek we want to have because and in the first season you really didn't get any of that everyone's kind of new kind of laying the foundation everyone's kind of just going along with Gene now you have promotions and you have kind of people know what they're doing and jealousy is starting to raise its head a little bit. And I mean, some people were even like Hurley's doing such a good job at the beginning of season two that he actually got it back 
to what it was prior the strike. And Gene was not about that. And Gene was like, no, this is what Star Trek needs to be now. So he's flip-flopping on this issue. And it even got to the point, talking about ego and stuff, this kind of little side story away from Roddenberry and Hurley, but talking about ego is that Patrick Stewart was like really upset one day is that he wouldn't read this particular line. He's like, I'm not reading it. It's stupid. And I'm angry about it. And that um, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. It's like, period. And he kind of just was this going to be, no, this is how it's going to be. And that Hurley said, and I quote, just fire them all. And that Berman can, we can just rebuild in the second season and we can just have an entirely new cast. And um, listen, to this is Hurley himself saying what he would just do in the middle of the second season to just fix all of these actors' issues. I'll build the second season on the absolute tragedy that the Enterprise exploded by unknown cause and lost everybody, and now we must find the new Enterprise crew. Systems are offline. Core breach is imminent. Yeah, so <laughs> I was like, we'll just kill everybody off and we'll get this new ship and this new Enterprise. And I mean, it would work, but it's just, gosh, that's, that's just so freaking petty. So anyway, season two's produced. Again, same kind of what we've been reporting, a lot of backbiting, a lot of fighting between Roddenberry and Hurley and the staff. And, and it's just, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere good. Now, this leads into the pre-production of season three as we kind of wrap up the writer's issue and drama here on this episode. Jump to Hurley not being back for the third season. Paramount did not bring him back. And I think that's one of the best things in Trek that's ever happened. Because if you look at the first two seasons of TNG, they're almost unwatchable. Like I said before, they're very plot driven. And if you're like, Jonathan, that's just your opinion. Oh no, my friend, the writer and co-producer Ronald Moore said that exact same thing. They're unwatchable and super plot driven and it's creaky, doesn't work very well, but they, I would say this, the most redeeming aspects of season one and two is that they brought in two, two big characters. They brought in the Borg and they brought in Q and also they brought in the holodeck. And that's something that we'll see throughout Trek forever. Now, now, now I know people, if you're really, Really nerdy, pushing up your glasses here. The holodeck was originally on Star Trek, the original cartoon back in the 60s. I know that. It isn't like it's displayed in TNG. Those three things will carry out through all of Star Trek for all of time because I feel like even now, Picard, we have the Borg, and I'm telling you, I think Hugh's coming back sometime in this Picard spinoff. With season three and then season four and season five, you, storytelling got a lot sharper as the show went on and gets better. And as you watch each season progress, it just gets better and better and better and better. In my opinion, same with a lot of the movies too. The movies get better and better and then take some dips, but it's still, still overall good. And I think it's with season one and season two being just not that really great. It's really a testament in my opinion to the fan base that we are as Star Trek fans is that, do you know what? We're going to stick with it. We're going to go through it. We know the show's going to get better. We know there's talent on this cast. We know there's talent in the writer's room. We're just going to stick with it until you guys find your footing. And, and that's what the fan base did. 
And thankfully they did, because I believe that if they didn't, Star Trek would have just been finished at that point. There probably would never have been another um, reincarnation. It would just been some campy 60s show. And then this quasi one in the 90s, 80s and 90s, and that'd be it. But thankfully that didn't happen. And it turned into one of the greatest franchises of all time. So what they did to have this huge, big new style change is they brought in Michael Pillar, who is now, he was a writer, but they also made him an executive producer. And he started on season three. And he was, the thing that changed the show is that he was super rigid in producing writing. Remember what Gene said about Sausage Factory? Well, Pillar could get it done. And he could get it done quickly, but with quality. And he ran the room very well, but he also kind of stepped back a little bit. Now, if you watch the DS9, what we left behind document series, you'll know who Ira is. And Ira was kind of quasi put in charge of the writer's room. And so Pillar could just do the rewrites. And yeah, but the room worked and it worked well. Well oiled machine. And um, one of the very first conversations that Ira has in season three with Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Patrick Stewart told him that there's not enough F and effing, F and effing. I'm going to say that again on Star Trek. And that's fighting. And well, we'll just call it fornicating. <laughs> they needed to bring, Pat Stewart thought they needed to bring more of that in. And so what Ira did in his first episode is he introduced the planet Ryza. And for me personally, that's one of the easy planet names to remember. And the funny thing is he, he wanted... Um, Ryza to kind of solve that for for Stuart. He wanted him to be this, okay, the captain can finally let off some steam and he can finally have a romantic interest. And, and in a way that was so smart because it also humanized Picard in a way that we hadn't seen in the first two seasons. In the first two seasons, he's very strict, by the book, yes sir, no sir, not very, there's, no, there's nothing inside. You just see this very strict, cumbersome man um and so we we see his humanity come out a little bit more in season three and that was great <laughs> the funny thing is a little side story about Riza is that some of the producers wanted to be like this orgy planet and like women making out and men making out, and it's been like thing you couldn't put on tv back in the early 90s but they wanted to just be like this orgy planet and then paramount said no you can't put that on tv it would never be allowed and they're like fine we'll just settle for picard getting late Anyway, so you can definitely tell there's already a tonal shift in the writer's room on the cast that, hey, this is going to be a better Trek. And I mean, look how Stewart's ideas were listened to on season three as opposed to the first two seasons. Now, that's a little bit of a tip of the cap, what we're going to bring up in our next segment, because Patrick Stewart had a lot of issues with a guy named Pike, ironically named Pike who was an executive producer of the show. And we'll get to that later in a little bit. So you can tell the tonal shift in season three, but nothing really changed for the fandom. Remember when I said that no one really took Star Trek seriously? It was kind of the bastard child of Star Trek universe. No one really took it seriously until the season three finale, Best of Both Worlds, when um, the cutest of Borg comes up and Riker goes, fire, to take out the Borg cube. And that cliffhanger really changed the fans. And you can, the writers and, and even some of the actors on this documentary say, it was like tonal shift, snap of the fingers. Everybody kind of respected the show now 
and wanted the show to come back. And it was just kind of crazy to, that happened that fast. Now, I think, I don't know if that's what the solve our issue now with Trek, um, with this new Trek and some of the fan base there, because we're definitely not unified behind those new shows. However, I, I would love that they had kind of a catalyst moment, but we'll see. That's in the future. And I mean, another a great way to humanize Picard is bring him, make him a Borg. And in season four, he has that beautiful acted episode where Picard goes home to France. He's the most English Frenchman in the world. He goes home to France and he and he gets in that fight with his brother and he's um, in the mud and he's crying. He's like, you don't know what they made me do. You don't know what they made me do. And one of the probably top five scenes in all of Stewart's Trek career, in my opinion. And it just kind of really, yeah, kind of changed the tone of this the series again, making him even more humanized, even more relatable, even more vulnerable, which is what you need in a great character that everybody across the board can relate to. Rick Berman and Pillar were great for the show. And they, as season three went on, they started seizing power a little bit and um, kind of getting more influence. And what Rick did was great. And Super Smart even mentioned this, that he brought Patrick Stewart in a lot. And a lot of the others actors just discuss not only this season, but where he would want their characters to go. So having that influence and input from their characters is just, that's super valuable. And you can tell that these two guys, Rick Berman and Pillar really shaped Star Trek for the future forever, in my opinion. Anyway, this is a, um, and you're kind of like, well, how can Pillar create conflict that's too organic? And I'm going to show you this clip and you'll be like, oh, that's how. That's so simple, be it. It's brilliant. So anyway, here's a clip of Pillar kind of writing, creating that conflict. It just seems so organic. So take a listen. Data. And what Klingons do to their children. Data, I am not talking about parenting. I am talking about the extraordinary consequences of creating a new life. Does that not describe becoming a parent, sir? And it's just, again, moving from plot to character development, really changed Star Trek and saved the series in a way. So that has been kind of the drama in the writer's room per se. Um, and I know it was kind of a long section to start out with, but it was so great and so many Easter eggs going into. And um, now we're going to get into a little, we're going to jump a little bit more because there's still great um, little tidbits behind the scene. But it's just um, real funny stuff. Like for example, uh, moving on to, um, you know, with season one, they didn't really expect Star Trek to kind of take off. So they didn't invest. They had a large budget. So the budget was like razor, razor, razor thin. And so <laughs> it was so razor thin is that these trailers that they got for the actors and actresses to like sit in during scenes, they were had like no AC. There's no bathrooms inside of them. And <laughs> um, I'll just let Denise Crosby explain it. Things that they dug out of some back lot that probably no one had been in, in since 1953. Yeah, so not a lot of perks for this first season. And funny thing is, it turns out to be one of the most successful TV shows of all time. But um, it's just so, yeah. So it's just humble beginnings for these guys. And um, Crosby even continued on in this documentary explaining how she would go to the Cheers lot that was right next to Star Trek. And she would steal food because 
the food they had was like kind of bad and crappy. So she would go to the cheers lot and just get food there. And, and I never thought about that is that Stuart goes into this. And I think so does Frax about how the fact that they didn't have any money that first, really first or second season really made them feel like the bastard children of Star Trek is that no one believes in us. No one really thinks we're going to do anything with this. So I think that's an interesting way to see it. Usually we just see it from our fans perspective, but see from the actors on the show, that's interesting. So also speaking with this, a great transition into Denise Crosby is that if you've watched season one of TNG, you know that she, her character gets killed halfway through the season by this oil monster. And I guess that's just the best way to describe it. Cause he's like, don't go across me. And she goes across him and he kills her. So anyway, but the reason behind the scenes why that happened was because Denise Crosby was kind of upset because they barely utilized her in, in the episodes. Like apparently in the first season before she got taken out, she was only in the show like a third of the episodes. And she, and even in some of those episodes, she didn't really contribute. She would just be like, I, I captain or, Yes, and like hit a button or something like that, or it wasn't really contributing at all. But the problem was, is, and this would definitely make me mad too, and I can totally relate, is that she had to still be on the bridge for those 12, 16 hour days. So you're standing there for 12, 16 hours, and the only line you have is I, I, Captain, you do it once, but you still have to be there. That'd be frustrating. That would be, and you're on your feet the whole time. So next next time you watch Star Trek season one and you kind of have that arch behind um, Picard, you see that tactical officer's feet. That's Denise Crosby. And it's not a stand-in. She actually asked the production staff to create fake legs that they could just sit up and not have her come in on set. They told her no. They said, no, you have to be on set for all the time, et cetera, et cetera. It just wasn't a a good relationship between Crosby's people and the studio and, and Patrick Stewart is going to shed some light on this in this next clip. So here, take a listen. When I think about the Israeli Palestinian negotiations, I think about, you know, sometimes they seem to negotiate the way the studio was negotiating with Denise's people and it ended up with her just going. Wow. Okay. That's, that's nuts. And also really sad. And um, I think she would have been a great addition to the, to the show to have her stay on the whole time. And I mean, they did quasi bring her back as a Romulan in the later seasons in a weird way. But, and I think that was just them being like, crap, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't technically bring her back, but we still want her around type of thing. So I think the studio eventually felt bad. And I know the actors definitely wanted her to back in some way. So that quasi Romulan arc is, is interesting. But, um, so this leads into another, character leaving the show and if you listen to this week's relax fit episode and i think another episode i mentioned this too and we're talking about gates mcfadden leaving at the end of the first season so the politics the backbiting that's all going on on top of all of that okay just a background gates mcfadden was on broadway she was a stage actress she was big on stage production she was um a dancer choreographer so she was that was kind of what she was used to is this stage production lifestyle. And apparently in this interview, you can hear her talk about how stage production is everybody just speaks their mind. There's no 
real politics. I'm sure there are in their own way, but there's no real issues with people raising in a hand or saying, speaking their piece or speaking their mind. And so what McFadden did on season one is she would constantly tell and rightfully and rightfully should the writers and the producers, Hey, you're kind of making Crusher sexist. You're kind of giving all these sexist plot lines to all the women on the show. And that's not right. You need to kind of expand our characters. You need to do right by us. And because again, this is the eighties, 89, 90, not really as progressive as we are today. And Sadly, they were just like, look, we don't want to listen to this. We're just going to, you're just going to leave. We're going to cut you out, which is interesting because McFadden was like one of the top three most popular characters on the show. And so for them to do that is wild to me. And even Hurley on this documentary, Chaos on the Bridge, he says, well, we think Gates was being a little high handed and she was demanding at times. And then Stewart immediately, Patrick Stewart is like, uh, I don't know what they're talking about. I never experienced that. Gates was being that way. So that just kind of gives you a good insight into the how the show was ran and, the, and how it was produced. But it's just hilarious to me that they, they axed her for just speaking her mind about that and raising important issues. However, when they cut her and she was adored and suddenly gone, they brought in Pulaski. And she was, Pulaski was only the doctor for season two of Trek, if you didn't know. And Dr. Pulaski, and this is really sad, is that um, Patrick Stewart said, yeah, it was super awkward around her. She never really became part of the cast. And it was just awkward. And I'm like, wow, he reiterated awkward twice. So on screen, they have great chemistry, but that's just because they're great actors and actresses. But um, I guess behind the scenes, Pulaski was super awkward and, Nobody really liked working with her. And on the low key, Stuart was prepping and kind of speaking the ear of Paramount and the executive producers. Hey, we need Gates back. We need Gates. And I'm glad they brought her back. And um, hopefully they'll bring her back for Picard season two. A little shout out to this week's Relax Fit episode. Yeah. So there was this, you had Denise Crosby leaving, you had Gates McFadden leaving. This is wild times. Cast members getting cut left and right. It really was chaos in the 24th century. So as we wrap up, we have one more kind of big section left. And this is really kind of kind of blew me away and I had no idea this was happening. Is that um, these are kind of two stories that are happening right now. And we're going to get two sides of the same coin. Pike was one of the executive producers and head honchos of TNG. And we all knew Patrick Stewart. So Pike is saying that Rick Berman called him and said that Stewart was unhappy and unsatisfied with the current role of John Luke Picard in season one and season two, and that he didn't like how his character was going. He wanted to talk with Pike about it. And so Pike is like, okay, well, we'll have Stewart meet me for lunch in the executive dining room at Paramount on the lot and meet me in the back of this particular thing at 1 p.m. And then according to legend, Pike said to his secretary, remind me to go to lunch at one fifteen, And she's like, don't you know that it's your meetings at one? And he's like, Oh, I know. So he's trying to play politics. And the funny thing is, is what this is all according to Pike, by the way, there's no corroborating interviews or witnesses or anything is that according to Pike, he asked Stewart to say, Hey, wear your uniform when you come to lunch. I want the whole captain's regalia thing. And so again, another way to make him wait, make him look ridiculous because he's in an executive dining room 
in the Starfleet uniform. So he's kind of like playing politics, playing games. A little, gosh, it's so freaking petty here. It's like Game of Thrones. Stewart's been waiting for 15 minutes and Pike runs up and said, hey, let's just cut straight to it. I know you aren't being challenged. So just bear with us for a few more weeks and we're just going to have you written out and you can just go and do projects that you do like. <laughs> because he's like, I don't want you unhappy, man. I don't want you upset. So we're just going to let you go. And it's the best for everybody. It's good for us, good for you. And everyone's going to be happy. According to Pike, he just left and Stuart was just just rattled and completely shaken and didn't know what to do. And kind of just like, oh, had to put his tail between his legs and be like, no, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't who I, I, I want to be Picard. It's okay. We'll just have to work on future scripts and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. But the funny thing is, as in according to Stuart, he said he never had the meeting like this. That it never, ever, ever happened. It was complete crap. And that he's just kind of making it up. And I and I get why Pike would do that. Because he wants to be like, I challenge the great Sir Patrick Stewart. And he blinked and he bowed. He bent the knee because he had to just, he, he was being complaining his ego and I shattered his ego and just all the lame politics penis measuring stuff that goes on in this kind of environment, sadly. And so, um, but Stewart's like, never happened. This is what it was really about, is that um, according to Stewart, he says that um, the studio told him that Good Morning America was coming into LA and they wanted to film on the Cheers and Star Trek set. And as you remember from Crosby stealing food, Cheers and Star Trek set are right next to each other. And Stewart was like, no, we're not going, we shouldn't do this. Like, this is, we're trying to create a world, 12, 14 hour days. We're trying to create this, this 24th century. And it has to be believable because if it's not believable and it's not taken serious, no one's going to watch the show. And this is going to be, look, it's going to look ridiculous if we don't take it serious. And I completely agree with him on that. Like if you had these gags and kind of just poking fun at the whole Star Trek thing, it, it just would look it just would take the seriousness out of the show and the themes that they try to raise out of the show. So the studios were like, look, we're not doing that. Just be quiet. You're an actor. And Stuart's like, look, can we just lay some ground rules here and say, how about no gags, no jokes, nothing like that. And the studio's like, of course, we're not going to let them undercut the show and any undermine the show in any way, shape or form. So everyone's happy. So apparently Stuart goes on to the set just to kind of see what's happening during the GMA live show. And the weatherman is on the bridge of the Enterprise doing the forecast in Stuart's captain's uniform. And Stuart on live TV says like, F you, I'm out of here. And people are freaking out because he's on live TV. And, um, <laughs> and the funny thing is he was like, I'm done with this. So Stuart runs out. He's like, this is ridiculous. So he goes to his trailer and he's been in his trailer like 30 seconds and his phone rings. And it's again, John Pike saying, Hey, I want to see you in my office. And he's like, basically read him the riot act and just chewed him out for a good hour or so before, um, Pike let Stewart go and he didn't fire Stewart or anything like that. He was just like, just never do that again. You embarrassed us. And that was it. So these are the two stories. And so you have one where Stewart's groveling to John Pike. And then the other one you have John Pike chewing Stewart out, but for a completely reasonable thing. So it's just kind of, I mean, and I'm not like mixing up 
arguments or anything like that from the documentary. These are like back to back. They're both describing the same story. And it just seems like John Pike's just, he seems kind of like a douche in my opinion. And so it just seems like they're just kind of making stuff up to get the drama. You know what I'm saying? To get that. So with all of, sadly, as we wrap up here in our last segment, um, all of Star Trek with season one, season two, going into season three, we see this erosion of Gene Roddenberry's power and influence on Trek. Is that it really has become now Rick Berman and Michael Pillar's world, and it's no longer Gene's world. And Gene actually passed away in between season three, season four. He was an icon, absolutely great um, visionary and gave us great ideas and things to hope for and to look forward to and to shoot for passing of the torch to Berman and pillar and fun fact that TNG was the only syndicated show to be Emmy nominated for outstanding drama in the seventh season. People knew that that Gene didn't want to fossilize this franchise to so just have it on the shelf as that. So he broke it open and we now have one of the greatest um, franchises of all time. It's a legacy. This guy left us. So now that Berman, Pillar are in charge, they go on to become great executive producers of Voyager, I think DS9 as well. So it's just the torch has been passed. And that concludes all of the drama, the behind the scenes of TNG in the first three seasons. And it's been a wild ride. It's been a longer episode than normally do, but I think they're great and the content's awesome. And thank you guys for listening. So that has been our conclusion of episode two of 24th Century Chaos. Wowie wow. This has been a fun um, episode to do. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And to all my American listeners out there, happy July 4th. I know this is releasing on July 3rd, so I just want to say that. Enjoy the long weekend. And I'm here to happily announce our next um series. Now, originally, I think on episode one of the TNG drama episodes, I mentioned how we're going to do a quick side story, relaxed fit episode about um, political commentary in Star Trek. And the more I researched that, I realized, no, you you don't, you can't do like a relaxed fit 15, 20 minute episode on this. This is going to be a multi episode arc. And so I think with the current state of the world, and I think this would be a great time to highlight some of the awesome way Star Trek has commented on the political landscape of its time, whether that's in the 60s or the 90s, or even today with Picard and the refugee crisis. Ooh. So there's there's so many good nuggets of information out there. And, and that's, to me personally, what makes Star Trek so great is the social commentary it gives. And not every episode, but a lot of episodes they do. So um, that's going to be our next series. And always remember um, these Thursday and 11 o'clock, we're going to do our Netflix watch party every week. Um, just be looking out for social media on that. You can find us on Instagram at Omega Particle Podcast and on Twitter at Omega Particle underscore. Happy to reach out. Thank you guys for the followers and, and, and interacting. I'm making some great friends all over the globe. And you guys have been so um, supportive and helpful. And I just, yeah, I love doing this behind the mic. And um, we'll continue to do it in the future. And also, we never talked about the... We passed our 20th episode with the Relax Fit. Now we're on episode 21. Isn't that crazy? A um, little fun fact, the average podcast only lasts seven episodes. Believe it or not, only lasts seven episodes. I think there's like only, there's 500,000 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, but only like um, a small majority actually produce content every week. 
So um, I was like kind of blown away by that. But some interesting facts there. But yeah, so we're we're beating the odds. We're we've doubled. We've I'm sorry, we've tripled that. We're on episode 21 now. So thank you guys for the support. And um, again, don't let your heart be troubled. And always remember, second start of the right, straight on till morning.